0: From So Say We All in KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the series that features true stories from the lives of America's veterans told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnell. Today's show is focused around individuals who have unique insights about the process of staring into the abyss as well as climbing back out of it again. We have four markedly different perspectives on that theme today from veteran artists and veteran arts organizations who come at it from distinctly different perspectives. Andrew Zela, combat medic in the U.S. Army, Rolf Ingvies and Gil Soto from the U.S. Navy, as well as Elizabeth Washburn and Dan Lopez from the veteran arts group Combat Arts. My friend and program director Julia Evans helped me out on this episode, so when you hear a distinctly different voice from my own during Gil's interview, that's Julia Evans. We're starting off with Andrew Zala, who served as a combat medic in the Army and saw combat in Afghanistan in 2009 and 2010. He's lost four friends to suicide and PTSD-related issues since then, in addition to witnessing firsthand many of the issues today's veterans face. And we're grateful to have his portrait of a service member's experience on that front with his story you're about to hear titled The Mountain. Here's Andrew.
1: Hi, my name is Andrew Zayla, and this is The Mountain. The mountain is tall, late summer leaves. Initially, he pulls his car up. He does not notice anyone at the trailhead. He ventures deeper. He encounters cars, one, two at most. He's unfazed and knows what he's doing. No moment of hesitation, no last glance at his car. The door closes and there is only forward now. He's used to this. The mountain hides the exertion required to proceed. On his exit from active duty there have been parties, Friends came out of the woodwork at his homecoming, patting him on the back and telling him how they would have joined also, but... There was always a but, and a reason why they couldn't put their lives on hold. As the days passed and turned to weeks, the friends came by less and less. While he'd been away, they'd gotten on with their lives, and in his mind, he had become like a scar. Present, but not thought of until looked directly at. He and his wife began to fight more, His temper would rage and quickly reach a crescendo before falling abruptly off with his exhaustion. Always exhaustion. Sleep came in sprints, and his mind took him back to the desert while he dreamed. The mountain at its base is wide and the path hot. The trees hold the mountain's breath beneath their leaves. As he passes the descending hikers, only a quick nod is exchanged, his presence barely registered. How different they seem. His climb is not for sport nor fitness. He drinks no water. He'd felt trapped in his body, isolated in his mind. His new sobriety added to his seclusion as he watched those around him a merriment while he sipped Diet Coke. Confirming what he already knew, He was different. It was not his presence but lack thereof which burned to the most. He was a zombie. What's wrong became a daily question which he yearned to answer. The last hikers pass on the way down. He's alone. The mountain is indifferent. Each step draws him to the peak. He hears no words. He hears no birds or song. The necessity of the military in some capacity was not up for debate. He knew this. And while we had made great strides towards peace, our kind will never exist without the presence of evil draped in the robes of good. He struggled with this for a long time unable to place into words why it was okay to do the things he had. What took him the longest to overcome was the fact that there was evil on both sides of any war. And like all things, the sum lived in the gray. His actions held him in high esteem among his peers, but knowledge muddied this fact. He would try. He would resolve to be better, to immerse himself in the world and live, but to fall. He would see around him the emptiness of a world without the hierarchy of the military. The outside world had no form and rules were seen as disposable. It made no sense. Who won and lost? He began to build resentment to his own helplessness. He struggled to maintain the bearing the military had built into him. His footholds disappeared. He entered college in an attempt to better this. He joined the military for the same reason. Here he saw it, a tattered yellow ribbon informing all how much the troops would be supported. After a while, all those ribbons began to feel like a lie, a placebo made to make their owners feel better about their own helplessness in a burning world. In the end, no one had to actually support the troops as long as they said they did. Finding employment reinforced this conclusion. A veteran preference as a concept was not readily applied during the hiring process. His skills did not translate. His time was passing, sitting in the VA, no one from his war. His guilt at feeling this mattered somehow. Each one seemed somehow different and the same. Was he one of these? So many broken. He was like a child in a physician's office waiting for his grandmother. Some tried. Most did not. Their battle was apathy. When she left, he couldn't blame her. When she took his children, what could he say? His mind was absent, his body a shade. He sat sometimes for days in his world, scrolling through social media, angered by the nature of others' daily problems. They would never know real stress. They would never know real. When he saw pictures of his wife and her new that, holding his child, it confirmed what he already knew. He did not exist. He had been erased and his story retold without him. Their happiness was a new pain. He is in the violet world, making his way through the trees. As the path grows hard to see and the journey more beat, his mouth dry, clothes drowned. It was here he saw it, his way out a small break ahead to take in open air, the mountain's last light. He felt forgotten, used and tossed aside, disposable for a purpose, a bargaining chip, an advertisement, discount at a diner where no one wants to eat. One day a year for him and a weekend in the spring for his friends passed. His anger and guilt at these thoughts came in equal spades. His mind often turned to his brothers who'd passed. He thought of each individual soldier and how they lived. They were not sports stars. They were not beautiful creatures. They were men and women,
2: their blood red.
1: He remembered Abdul Aziz, his interpreter, medevaced after walking over an old landmine. He never knew if he survived. Often with combat, no closure could be found. He emerges from the tree line into the sun. Up here, he can see the basket of the earth in the valley below. He can see it is larger than him and knows it will exist without him. There before him is a warm expanse of grass and dirt. The soldier's throne. It only takes a finger.
0: I really like the choices you made with that. I like the subtle disgust, too, when talking about the wife's new boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it it happened to a lot of guys. Luckily, I haven't had to to deal with that. When I came home, uh, my wife and I took about a month off, came back, cleared Fort Lewis out in Washington State, and then went directly to a year-long intensive nursing training program where we were just put through the ringer in the middle of nowhere in Georgia (laughs) with no family or friends around us that story wasn't solely ours. There were several other people who were kind of going through the same thing. And I think you add into the fact that especially when you uh, first return, you know, you do go through the psychological battery of testing, but for the most part you don't really believe unless you are having a lot of trouble if you're kind of in that middle ground you may have ptsd but you're not quite sure that you do and you 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 your only examples of what ptsd really is or maybe movie portrayals where people are yelling about you know charlie's in the trees and all the rest of it like if that's your idea of what ptsd is then you sit there and go "Well, i don't have ptsd and you don't really realize all the little parts of it until you've already been through it for the most part for over a year and your marriage has been through it. Your relationships with family and friends and even your command has been through it. And all of a sudden you're looking at yourself and people are telling you, You've changed. You're quick to anger. Like it's like zero to sixty. I know that was one of my biggest things. My wife just telling me like you're just not the same. You're very quick to anger. Luckily I got in and got as much help as I could, as fast as I could. But I guess, you know, I come from a medical background. I was a combat medic first, and then I went on and became an LPN. We had the training for that. You could recognize the signs in yourself because you were trained to recognize the signs in others. But for many people, there is no training for that. In fact, you're just, you're given the briefings maybe. And if you've got a really good combat medic and you're out down there in an infantry or tank platoon, they'll catch it. But For a lot of things you just accept that this is part of the culture and you're just like a lot of the other guys out there and you're just doing your thing
0: do you find that one of the reasons it's hard to seek treatment or or to explore the possibility that one has post-traumatic stress is because there's the nature of war is such that there's always someone who seems to have it worse you know and the selflessness of the service kind of makes you look to help others before oneself sometimes.
1: Absolutely, I mean humans in general, not just soldiers, but humans in general have a great capacity to rationalize Everything. Hey, I mean, we're poor, but we're not as poor as those guys. Those guys are on the street. There's always a way to rationalize it. So, yes, absolutely. You look at someone who's got PTSD really badly, and you're like, well, I'm not that bad. So maybe I don't have it. For a lot of people, there's always this kind of internal back and forth that kind of happens where you're like, maybe I do have it, maybe I don't have it. I mean, it's sad to say, but I think a lot of people don't really address it until they're getting out of the military for whatever reason, whether you're retiring, you're just separating or you're being medically discharged. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I've been living with this for years. I remember it was something I'd see in Walter Reed a lot when I was working as a nurse there is, is the older generation, the, the guys from Vietnam and Korea and World War II who would be racked with drinking problems, just not taking care of themselves and having other issues that can kind of stem and spiral out of control from PTSD. And just looking at that and realizing, like, I don't, I don't want it to get to that point. I, I that's why I saw sought treatment. For others, whether it's just not accepting it or not wanting to address it, or just really not believing that they have post traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury or any of these other almost internal, non visual
0: injuries, they live with it. Having thought on it now, being, having been back for a little while, what do you think it is that civilians or the civilian world? isn't providing vets that they should be. And that can include government services. It can also include our cultural offerings.
1: With cultural offerings, there's this perception around soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, that when you go to the military, you have automatically just killed people. People will point blank ask you, did you ever kill anyone? And it's like, there was so much more to being in the military and serving your country than pulling a trigger or pressing a button and sending a missile somewhere. For the most part, you kind of want to say, like, first off, like, none of your business, <laughs> you know? Secondly, you know, the majority of people in the military haven't killed anyone. It's not part of their job description, like, quite, like point <laughs> blank.
0: Right.
1: You know, there are more like nurses, uh, medical personnel who have done more good in war zones for civilians than especially in in this particular uh, war in Afghanistan and Iraq, than they were ever given credit for. And yes, there are absolutely stories of people killing civilians indiscriminately. And you you cannot forget that. But for most people, they go and they serve and they come home and that's it. There isn't this hurt locker, constant set of conflict present. And for some people, it does exist. And do not get that twisted. Some people have been put through the mm-hmm. ringer and have had to be part of operations you'll never hear about, have done some incredible heroic things or have had to do some incredibly horrific things. But the fact that sometimes people just lead with that question, it's something that I think should be culturally addressed. The other thing is is the support our troops mentality where, and I, and I put that in the piece, The Tattered Yellow Ribbon. We support our troops. We have a veteran's preference. We have all of these things set up, and we're going to get out there, and we're going to help all these veterans out and get great jobs for them. And then when you call them and you start to try to do the interview process, they tell you, oh, you're just not qualified at all for any of these positions, and we're not willing to really even train you or let you start off in the mailroom somewhere because you don't have a bachelor's degree. Well, you know, for the majority of enlisted personnel, they don't have time to finish a bachelor's degree before they get out of the military. A lot of them are taking college classes and a lot of them are trying to get there, but your options are limited. You, for the most part, are really engaged in online classes, trying to stay in some kind of reputable institution over the internet while you're being moved across the country to go do a training for a month getting deployed for a year and there are some options out there but i mean for a perfect example i got an associate's degree when i was in the military by the time i was out of the military the learning institution was completely discredited and shut down and bought by a different college so the 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 university that i got my associate's degree from doesn't exist anymore (laughs) And you kind of look at it like, well, so what were you guys doing? Just taking government money? Uh, If you spent 15 years directly in the infantry, you may have leadership training, but you've been trained to do this exact thing for this long. It's, It's easy to underestimate how much your personality becomes that of the military.
0: What, for you, were some of the most impactful parts of your service on your relationships when you came back home and and affecting you in the reintegration. What was it about the transition that you felt you weren't prepared for or that you wish you'd been prepared for?
1: I suppose one of the biggest things was just being more engaged. You spent a year isolated. I mean, you've got the internet, but for the most part, you don't realize how little cultural engagement you get from the internet. I mean, I had no clue who Lady Gaga was until I got back. You know, everyone's like, oh yeah, Lady Gaga. I'm like, I don't, who's Lady Gaga? When you get back, it's, it's kind of overwhelming. There's a lot there and you try to just take it all in. It starts to play with the PTSD a little bit. That was the first really big thing that I I think was pointed out to me. It's like that I wasn't present anymore. And I didn't even know what that meant for the longest time. Thank God for my wife, who's been extremely patient with me through, (laughs) through our entire marriage. But specifically since I got back from Afghanistan. The other thing was the anger. There's a line in the story where I say that the anger would come on in a quick crescendo and then drop off. And that's, that was the other big piece that probably put the most strain on my marriage was I would get so rageful and then you'd, It's almost like you catch yourself and you're like, oh, what am I even like doing? Is this really what I'm being? Because I can remember not really being like this either. And so you start to like shut down because all you're doing is thinking about it. And there comes that distance again.
0: From watching your friends who have had a hard time reintegrating and and also yourself and watching the easy bag of tricks people reach into when they're trying to Mm self-medicate. What advice now would you give to the spouse and partner and family of a... Service member coming back and and going through that struggle. Talk. Mm.
1: Communication.
0: Use your words.
1: That's what we tell my son all the time. Use your words. But it's true for soldiers, sailors, marine airmen, all of us coming back. People from the World War II generation would tell you stories. And I noticed that a lot of the Vietnam generation, they didn't because culturally there was this huge protest and everything else that went on back then. I mean, this is before I was born, but I can, can appreciate history, and I think there was a lot of just avoidance to the fact that they were ever in the military, period. I remember talking to this biker in a bar down here in Florida, and he, he was an old combat medic, so we, you know, of course, struck up a conversation about being combat medics in two different wars. He told me, like, the day he got out of the military, he took every piece of military memorabilia he had Drove behind a Kmart and dumped it into a dumpster and just kept on driving. It didn't speak about it again for 20 years. And so what Mm -hmm. I've always taken from that, and one of the reasons why I thanked you guys in the beginning for giving veterans a voice, is it's an outlet. It's getting your story out of your core where it's strapped to your soul and getting it to anyone who will listen. Writing and, and being published with So Say We All is really giving me the shot in the arm to keep on plugging forward with this. I mean, if anything else, it's validation. The words you put together have power and they're going to reach other people. And maybe if there's someone out there who is going through this kind of change from... Being in the military to being a civilian they're seeing all these things happen around them and they're getting to that point where they're thinking about killing themselves maybe reading it and realizing that they're not alone and that other people have kind of gone through this and that there is help out there and they can keep going that'd be worth it right there We've lost more soldiers to suicide at this point than actual war deaths over the past Right, by a a
0: hugely substantial amount.
1: Hugely substantial amount. It's something that we all know about. I don't know anybody who hasn't lost anyone out of all my veteran friends or my active duty friends. It's something that we need to get a handle on and we need to figure out exactly how we're going to go forward and save some of these guys lives
0: and that makes a great transition to the question i ask everybody is if you were to come across a service man or woman who's about to term out rotate out of the military and say about two weeks or a month and you could give him one piece of advice what do you think it would be now just
1: communicate talk you know talk to anyone make sure that you have open communication with the guys still, the men and women who are still in uniform, and make sure you have a, a support system on the other side. Reach out on Facebook to a, a veterans group. If you're like, I really have nobody, I guarantee if you post to a veterans group on Facebook, you will get people responding out of the woodwork, being like, hey, man, been there. Here's some resources. The transition is hard. It's a rocky road. Everyone has to walk it, but on the other side, it's 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 good. You know, you're going to get through it, and you're going to have good days and bad days, but you're going to be here and it's, it's entirely worth it.
0: Andrew Zela, thanks for being on Incoming. Thank
1: you so much. And just, I really hope, so say we all can keep on running programs just like this.
0: Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is Rolf Ingvi, who rose from seaman to captain during a 35 year active duty career in the U.S. Navy during which he served as a surface warfare officer, commanded a destroyer and served as the U.S. defense attache to Rome. Rolf writes a lot nowadays. He's getting a lot of good use out of his M.F.A. from Warren Wilson College, and his story today resonates with our theme by portraying a time in his life after he'd overcome so many hurdles and accomplished so much but still found himself questioning if any of it was worth anything. But sometimes going for a walk during the darkest hours teaches us the most important lessons we need to learn. And Rolf is gonna share with you a couple of tips he learned from his walkabout. Here's Rolf.
2: My name is Rolf Ingvi, and my piece is titled A Couple of Safety Tips for Those of You Returning From Deployments. So here's a tip, don't die. Of course, in our profession, the ships, the sea, the battlefield, all have their accidents and errors, blunders and bad luck. Your timing can be off. You can get caught up with the wrong crowd. Things happen, sometimes fate. We know this. But blunder and bad luck aside, there are always some people who think dying might be preferable to return. Here's an example. Coming back from deployment once, I told my pal, let's call him Dwarf. I was so depressed about my wife leaving me, I was thinking of shooting myself. As luck would have it, the tool was in hand. We were on a skeet range. Now, Dwarf was so short, he had to offset that issue by getting a bench press up to twice his weight. He stood on a box to see properly over a destroyer's bridge wing. Firearms always have an offsetting effect. Dwarf liked offsets. No wonder he likes skeet. But in naval practice... There is no offset for what we call a suicide ideation. Having heard me ideate, Dwarf was regulation-compelled to tell my captain. The captain then would take me off the ship, have me examined, then detached for some assignment where my potential suicide would result in no skin off his nose. Actually, my captain was a pretty good guy. He would have shipped me off because he was worried about me. He was like Dwarf. He was a shipmate. He was a true shipmate. And when you have a shipmate like Dwarf, he doesn't tell anybody about your suicide ideation. Instead, he looks at that shotgun for shooting clay pigeons and tells you, don't shoot yourself, shoot her. It had never occurred to me. See, he says, if you shoot yourself, nothing happens. You just go. Whatever happens then doesn't count at all. We'll just have to find some way to fill your spot on the watch bill. You think she'll care? I gave it some thought. She might, I said. So you're going to do it to make her feel bad. So she'll pay attention. That's why you want to shoot yourself. Shoot her. Then what happens? You go to jail. She'll be dead. Something might happen afterward, but you won't have to worry about her. You want to shoot yourself to make her feel bad? You're missing the point. Besides, if you shoot yourself... You'll make somebody have to read that teary-weary, dumbass letter you're going to write." I had already written the letter. I've always liked those letters from the combat dead, the ones that start, Dear Mom and Dad, in case something happens, the letters no one sees unless some blunder, bad luck, or fate gets in the way. Hoping to measure up to them, I bought some good stationery, cream-colored from an expensive store, I copied a letter out by hand, measured every word. I mimicked that special courage and grace only the dead can bear, hoping if some blunder or bad luck occurred, someone might read it and care about me. I wrote it to my wife, kept it in my safe, which would be opened and inventoried if I tried out that shotgun on my forehead. I didn't have to write a stupid, teary-weary, dumbass letter. It was already finished, ready, waiting to go. Shoot her, I said. Right, Dwarf told me. Or don't shoot her. But don't shoot yourself, man. That's beyond dumb. Here, shoot a clay pigeon instead. It's not all about you. You've got shipmates, too. You've got us, and we've got you. Here's another tip. Be careful what you leave behind. The way this works... When you don't pay the rent for your storage box, somebody buys whatever you left behind, then sells what they can. While I was away for Desert Storm, some guy bought my stuff, sold the skis, beat up furniture, old lamps, dishes. Then for some reason, he looked through all the boxes of papers and bills, stories I'd written, childhood clippings my mother gave me, junk, all junk, and he found a letter. That's why he called my dad. The storage box scavenger found his phone number in one of the pieces of mail, asked dad if I was all right. Did I want my papers back? Dad told him he'd let me know. This guy lived out in the East County portion of San Diego where the citizens and architecture are equally weathered. He had a couple of dogs, ordinary stray looking dogs. Friendly and curious, and I found him working on an RV he told me he'd got after it was repossessed. He said, I was sorry I had to sell your goods after I read that letter. Go ahead and take your papers. Here's this. He handed it to me, a cream-colored envelope bought in an expensive store, a teary-weary letter I'd written practicing to be dead. Now a stranger, standing on a hard, scrabble porch in the East County heat, was saying... I thought you'd died. I thought your family might have wanted it. You know, I'm glad to be able to give it to you. I'm a vet too, glad you're okay. He held out his hand and I shook it. He said, how was it over there? I told him it was better than I expected. Not as good as I had hoped because you're supposed to say something like that coming back from deployment. He nodded the way he was supposed to nod. And how is that, the way he was supposed to nod, As if he understood, as if it was okay, as if I was forgiven, I had not realized I would need this forgiveness, but there it was given to me, gratis. That night, I went through those papers and got rid of bills I never paid, letters I'd never sent, tax forms never filed, all the stuff I had kept out of guilt or laziness, and my apartment filled with all those years when I had been happy, when I had thought my wife had been happy. All the years away, all the longing, wishing, waiting sorrow for the end of one deployment or another, the movement on and on. The last four years of our marriage, we had lived with each other less than six months. It was a Saturday night when other people were out on the town having fun, dancing, telling jokes, preening and flirting over their date night dinners full of adventure and hope. I hadn't thought much about my former wife for a long time. Before I shredded my teary-weary dumbass letter, I read it all again, feeling that stunning embarrassment over the blunders of the younger me, How could I write that kind of letter, hoping it would get printed someday? How could I hope for one of those battlefield moments, some accident of fate, error, bad timing, or bad luck, intervening as if somehow it would make sense out of the life I'd quit trying to carry forward? How could I have been so stupid to actually consider that shotgun? Now me, living, not killed, not shot by myself or anyone else, this miserable, humiliating letter shows up and I realize then what the East County scavenger had forgiven. I had thought I needed to remember. I thought my duty was to remember. It's not true. You do not have to remember the truth or what you think the truth might be. We don't have to remember how we felt. We can heal. We can move on, find our own places. Here are two tips for those of you returning from deployment, don't die. Be careful what you leave behind. Do that and it won't matter the way you were, you can fix it, do that. And you can find a way to be forgiven and a way to forget. Do that and there is still a chance you'll find the love you let go. Well, it was pretty simple. It was 1971. I, I'd already gotten one draft notice and gotten out of it by by staying in school. And I didn't think that was such a good idea anymore besides it was flunking out. And the, um, I knew they were going to draft me again. So I got down to the Navy and got a recruiter, a recruiter talked into accepting me instead of being drafted into the uh, Army. And the reason for that was that I'd always liked the ocean and sea and sailing and that sort of stuff. And friend of mine said to me, well, which would you rather do, dig ditches for two years or go sailing? So I joined the Navy.
0: Pretty easy call when you put it in that context.
2: Yeah, yeah, plus, uh, you know, it was 71, you know. There were a lot of us getting out of the draft one way or the other.
0: And how long did you stay in? I mean, you're a career man.
2: Yeah, I was 35 years active duty. So I, I enlisted as a seaman, and I, I wound up as a, as a captain a long time later. So there must have been something I liked about it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And you talk in your piece about how hard that was on, on your relationship. I mean, um, when you were away, did you kind of mediate in that relationship with those great pauses in between correspondences?
2: Well, I, I you know, I have to tell you, I mean, I wasn't good at it, all right? I mean, today it's a lot easier to sort of just, um, you know, write an email and people get worried when they don't hear something. There's a lot of connectivity, too. But, but you know, I think it's also an awful lot having to do with just the way you're thinking about things. At, at the time, and, and the way I look back on it's... A lot of the separation was caused in the sense of separation because I didn't communicate enough. And why didn't I do that? Maybe it's because I felt like I was in a different life. And when you'd come home, that would be one life. And then at sea, the other one would be another life. And the question became, you know, which one's real?
0: Right. I mean, that's an interesting point. And do you feel like there's like a psychological value in compartmentalizing those two different lives? Like you don't want to...
2: I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. I mean, I really don't know. I watch people compartmentalize and do really well with it over a long period of time. Other people can't do it. For me, it became became difficult. It's like having a split personality. You're playing a role in both places, and you know, then then it doesn't work. You can't you can't make that jibe. I think a lot of people have that trouble coming back from deployment, and, and especially when they've been overseas for as long as a lot of these guys have been in the last few years.
0: With the, with the suicide ideation that you mentioned in the piece, I mean, I know that that was related to... Um,
2: this is an interesting... Yeah, it's... Go ahead. Ask a question. First. No,
0: I was going to say that. I know, I you know, you say in your piece that it was related at that time to the kind of dissolution of your marriage, but what else was going on? Did you feel like it was the isolation of the, the military lifestyle? Or talk to me about that period in your life that that made you realize you were at that stage where you were considering more of an exit strategy?
2: Well, it was it was a very odd period. I mean, I was... All of a sudden, really successful in the Navy, I was getting. I was, I thought I was getting lots of strokes, and I'd, I'd just come off a really successful tour on a ship, but the, everything else around me was falling apart. I couldn't, I couldn't make the rest of my life function at all, and I literally couldn't. I mean, I'm not kidding about having trouble paying the taxes. It was like, just had to focus on that one thing, in order to somehow live up to the requirements. And the story is part of a longer piece. I was in my mid-30s then, and I think this happens to a lot of people at that point in their lives. I've seen, or at least my experiences with people of that age, that they begin to lose track of the things that they thought their life was going to be like. That was happening to me. Then in the course of this, and this piece is much is longer, is a part of a much longer uh, work, which talks a lot about uh, a couple of tours at sea and some things that happened that uh, affected me forever.
0: Talk to me a little bit about how you feel about the way military service is portrayed in the media, and writing, and movies, and what do they get wrong, and what do you think a veteran writer brings to the genre? That
2: oh, it's a struggle. Yeah, that's a really good. That's a really good question. Um, I think that uh, people in the military are very human. Uh, they have to deal with. Uh, working with their emotions, they have to have a technical ability and they have to have a kind of focus. But I never see quite the same amount of doubt and fear that I actually um, experienced when I was in the Navy. Uh, You know, Respeto, for example, is a wonderful piece. There he hit it, but that's not fiction. That That was absolutely filmed in the spot. And I think the things that Younger did with his two films are, are extraordinary, and they're truthful. But an awful lot of it is depends upon a kind of stereotype we have of military people and what they are like and what they want to do and what they want out of life, which is not accurate across the board.
0: Do you feel like it's easier now for a serviceman or woman getting out of the service today as opposed to when you joined 30 years ago to— Talk about their experiences, or do you still feel there's this strong uh, kind of self-censorship?
2: Oh, I think the self-censorship is there. I think it's very difficult. I mean l- lately, for example, I mean one of the things that's always kind of been a, I-, I hate to put it as an irritant, it was it's, but it's always kind of been one of those things that sort of nicked me on the shoulder a little bit. and that was you know people would say thank you for your service, which I always knew that that their their heart was in the right place to say thank you for your service. But it hearing it over and over, it becomes a kind of, it kind of places me, it sort of tells me, okay, I've stereotyped you. I know what you are. So thank you for Do you feel you like it's service. a blow off? Yeah, it could be a blow off. I think a lot of people feel that way. I work with the veterans at, um, at the uh, Veterans Village of San Diego. I basically just help these guys write uh, resumes. And I think everybody worries about sort of being placed in a category if you tell them you're a veteran. In the old days, you know, it was the Vietnam veteran was kind of placed in a political category at some point, you know. I mean, there was all those stories about being spit on and stuff like that. By the way, it never happened to me. I don't know, maybe I was good-looking enough or something. (laughs) Who knows? But but the other thing is um, people today feel as though that they are – placed in a box where if you say that you're a veteran, especially a combat veteran, then somebody's gonna automatically assume that you're struggling with an an incredible burden of PTSD and guilt and and the rest of it. The truth of the matter is, people are different. They have a different view of these things that happen to them and they respond differently.
0: What what did you base the decision to to retire on?
2: I was tired. I was 55 years old. I've been in since I was 20. Um, I looked around and I, and I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to do anything else in life, if I ever put my finger on anything else, I need to leave. I was coming at the end of a tour and uh, my wife had also retired from the Navy. So we decided at that point it was time to make the move. Could have stayed another four or five years. But, you know, the truth of the matter is I, I wanted to get out. I wanted to study. I wanted to go write. I wanted to do the kinds of things I'm doing now, you know, working in the arts and, and especially with writing.
0: Yeah, you say, I was reading in some of the notes you sent me that you started, you started writing while you were sent to study meteorology when the Navy sent you off to college.
2: Yeah, yeah, I did, and it was, it was great. Um, these people at the University of Utah just sort of took me in like their mascot. I was in the graduated writing program. Two wonderful teachers that I had, a guy named Hal Moores, passed, and David Cranes is still around. and A bunch of graduate students encouraged me, and I, I, I wrote short stories ever after. It was part of my breathing.
0: How did you work in your writing into when you were back at sea, when I became part of your Navy life?
2: Poorly. Okay, I mean, I really was poorly. I mean, one of the things that you have to do in the Navy is you have to write a lot, especially as an officer. And, you know, I was I liked doing my writing well. I like to write well, and it's hard to write well. So I was always struggling with whatever report I had to write. And then when I got a chance, I would journal sometimes. I wrote a lot of stories. I was really surprised how many stories that I wrote but a lot of garbage. It was really a lot of false starts.
0: Was that the kind of time you thought you were, you feel like you got rid of that required, you know, 20, 30, 40 stories a writer has to write their shit before they get to a good one? Oh,
2: yeah, no, yeah, exactly. I could see that coming, You're right? No, the, no. actually, I thought I was just writing my way down into the absolute abyss. I feel, I just thought it was like a slide down to the end. You know, and, and at the end of it all, I sent this story to my friend David Cranes, and I said, do you, what do you think? Is this... Is this Is this reasonable work? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, this is good. Keep at it. You know, sometimes you just need a little encouragement.
0: What do you think civilians get wrong the most about the veteran community?
2: I I can't tell you that I, I have any thought about that, but what they get wrong the most. But the thing that I think that is most hurtful, I think, and sometimes, is the perception that people are in the military because they couldn't do anything else. I think that that's held that perception is held by a lot of people and I and I think that that's first of all it's just not true and because it's very hard to, to actually get into the military today or, or to have a position in any of the armed forces and and the notion that some young man or some young woman joined the military because they didn't have any other choice is just denigrating the whole aspect of what People do do and what they feel about their service. See what I'm saying?
3: Mm -hmm.
2: I I think that's the most hurtful one. But I don't think it comes out of a real overall civilian misunderstanding about the military. I think that the people who know people who are in the armed forces and have spent any time around them, or relatives, or brothers, sisters, sons, husbands who serve in the armed forces. You know see these people for who they are and And the people who don't have experience with them, well, what 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 can they do? They have to read the the newspaper which talks about you know the the things that are reportable.
0: Well, for you, when you were transitioning back into civilian life was the most difficult challenge about that. You were doing it with a partner. Your wife, as you said, was in yeah. the Navy also. So she was retiring at the same time as you, right?
2: Yeah, she was. It was the first time either one of, for both of us, I think, and I, I hate to speak for Sharon completely, but I saw this in her too. A lot of it was placing what happened to me into the right box in your memory, which is really what this story is about. You know, you. it was the first time I really had chance to sort of be able to consider everything that had gone on. It had been sort of a 35-year constant churn, if you will. Every 18 months, you'd, you'd you'd change jobs, maybe sometimes once a year. You're deploying all the time. We had all kinds of places, learned many, many things, and I never really had a chance to carefully assess it. And so it was hard for me to place all of that experience... In all of the successes and the failures and the guilt and the triumph somehow place it into understandable um, form for me, if you will. Still working on it.
0: So my last question that I, that I ask everybody is if somebody, if you were to be introduced to man or woman rotating out of the service today, what would be your piece of advice for them?
2: Oh, Yeah. Yeah. You know what I think my piece of advice is? Love somebody. That's it. I think that's the most important thing for people who are leaving the service. They've just got to find some way to love somebody, and they'll be fine.
0: Rolf Yngwie, thanks for being on Incoming.
2: Yeah, real pleasure.
0: Gil Soto produced one of the best open mic nights in town, which later became a podcast called Train of Thought. He's also known as one of the best performance poets around, winning numerous awards. He's the artist-in-residence of the Jacob Center for Neighborhood Innovation and, most recently, a playwright. But before all of that, he was in the Navy, and his work reflecting on that period of his life touches on many of the themes of struggles service members deal with, but through an inspirational and redemptive lens of energy that is definitively Gil Soto's own. I'll let you hear from the man himself though. Here's my friend, Gil.
4: Progress not perfection. Progress not perfection. I'm coming home. I learned what I could, saluted who I had to, and I ate what they fed me. If I never see another chicken fried steak on a plastic pink tray, I'd die a happy man. I'm ready for the sun to know me by my first name again. Tired of adapting. I've never been good at playing ocean. This tree has roots that long to be planted. Progress, not perfection. I am coming home. I remember leaving. I remember the party they threw in honor of me sailing off to protect this country. Not much fanfare and succeeding safely. Coming home is not as fancy. Much like divorce, people just want to know what's next. And saying, I don't know, is like checking other when asked to list your ethnicity. America doesn't do vague. If we can't label it, it doesn't exist. Four years and no real combat, I always get asked this question, are you really a veteran? Yes. My time served wasn't idyllic. I may have missed a few musters. I may have wrote a few poems when I should have been watching out for the enemy. One or two may have slipped by in the middle of a stanza, but I put on my patriotism one leg at a time, just like the decorated, the wounded, the forgotten. None of us perfect soldiers, sailors, marines. None of us perfect fathers, wives, husbands, nieces, or sons, but all of us have to come home. Or find a new one do not expect us to return better just be open do not expect us to return stronger just be open do not expect us to return understanding what happened to our world in our absence just be open and we will always love you for it progress not perfection we are coming home
3: Talk to me about where you were in your life when you joined the Navy.
4: Um, Joining the Navy was a funny story because um, all throughout high school, I had promised myself, promised myself I would never join the Navy. Uh, My father was in the military and he um, would go away for like six months at a time and then be home for only like three or four and then go out again. And I directly linked the military with my parents divorce uh, at a very young age and so i i saw that as as breaking uh, up families and i felt like the military breaks up families. and i've seen it happen with other kids my age so um I just I wasn't I was never gonna do it. And then senior year rolled around, and you know I hadn't even applied to colleges yet. And the recruiter uh, got me uh, got me in a corner and was telling me about where he got me and I think a lot of guys they're they're good at what they do. They talk about all the women you're gonna meet overseas and and the, oh you go to Italy and you meet these beautiful women and you go. To, Japan, You go here and there. And, you know, as a young uh, testosterone filled uh, 18 year old uh, to travel and and meet beautiful women and get paid to do it, um, you know, or you can apply to college, take your SATs and do all that stuff. So uh, since a lot of my boys were going in it, too, then I just kind of went that way. And I don't I don't uh, regret it. I don't regret it. Uh, I I believe that I I was able to do more in a short amount of time than a lot of people. Uh, But, you know, there's other things that I wish I could have done differently. But that's where I I, I was. You know, I just wanted to go for um, in my life. I'm all about like finding new adventures. So uh, I was all about the adventures. American Pirate. December 31st, 1999. For 17 years, Prince warned that this was gonna happen. The party has begun and I not only missed the boat, I got on the wrong one. No flights of fancy, no fanfare, no fun, no sexy women wishing to dance and drink away their daddy issues. Just sailors, just us sailors. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, your criminals, your high school underachievers, your I'll do anything to get out of this town, and we'll build you the best navy this nation can band-aid together. Dress pirates to look like gentlemen. Tell us this is for God and country. No need to trick us, Captain. We're American pirates, we are. We'll do it for women and money. December 31st, 1999. In the middle of nowhere doing nothing but keeping my tray from sliding off the table, the black ocean ebbs and flows rhythmically, trying to start the party. Keeps things rocking, but lacks any real direction. You know how them black oceans do. I'm trying to keep my chicken fried steak in my stomach. Three years as a sailor and I still keep a plastic bag in my back pocket in case of sickness. I'm an accident waiting to happen like Y2K. Someone reset the clock so these planes don't fall out of the sky. Someone turn back the time so I don't get on this boat. I'm supposed to be with Prince, Apollonia, Vanity, and Sheila E. And the rest of the revolution. It was the apocalypse we've all been waiting for. Instead, Clemens gets caught beating off in his space in the aft deck. They play in spades in the birthing and taking no prisoners. Clark got the Madden going on in the PlayStation in the laundry room. Usually I'd be engaged in one, maybe all three of them activities at the same time, but it's December 31st, 1999, and there will never be another one. No land to be seen, no kiss to be stolen. Military service is a marriage, and she always comes first and can care less if you reach your climax your goals, your dreams. Just do what she says, and you may make it out weak, but alive, and if you're lucky, with a few good stories. American Pirate.
3: What was the real best part of the experience?
4: And it turned out the traveling was the real best part. It got a bug in my system that I would never want cured, and that's to really travel. So after I got out of the Navy, I worked a few odd jobs, and then I got a job at a, a travel agency for like 14 years. And I continued to travel because it informed my world more than anything, like any more than any book I can read, more than any person, one person I can talk to who, who has traveled.
3: Gil Sotu, thanks for being on Incoming.
4: No problem. It's been my pleasure.
0: Our fourth and final set of contributors today, Combat Art stands out for several reasons. One being that they don't present therapy as being part of their programming, preferring instead to let the art and the process it comes from stand on its own. That's attractive to a lot of vets especially those who find themselves with the distrust of mental health practitioners or those who are currently in treatment and just want something outside of a therapeutic context. Their work is very public, whether it's a mural on the side of a car wash or spanning the length of a commercial building or a full replica of the forward operating base the artist slept in while deployed in Afghanistan, their creations are very hard to miss. So from Combat Arts, here's Dan and Elizabeth. Dan Lopez, Elizabeth Washburn, thanks for joining us on Incoming.
3: Thanks for having me. Thanks. I appreciate
0: it. Elizabeth, what? Prompted you to found Combat Arts?
3: Back in 2007, I read another news article about Marine casualties happening in Iraq. And it became one of those moments where I thought to myself, well, what can I do? And what I can do is I can make and teach art. So I called up the VA and asked them if they wanted some free art classes. There was a Navy psychologist, and he found out about the classes I was offering and then invited me over to start volunteering for him over at the PTSD clinic. From there is when it actually really grew. And that's when I took Turn combat arts into it, an actual nonprofit.
0: Paint me a picture of what that initial date was like with that room.
3: They all think I'm a hippie and and that I uh, eat magic mushrooms and smoke weed. and, And then for me, my stereotypes with service members, to be wholly and completely honest, was I didn't think of service members as necessarily being the sharpest tools in the shed. But that became glaringly apparently wrong the longer that I worked. I just had no background with military, and I, like everybody else, thought of them as a homogenous group of people that were all very similar. Obviously, everybody has a personal history that's very different, and the choice of the military comes from a lot of different sources. and. It's not as disparate as one would think, because when you start working with the creative process and you you break things down into steps, it's akin to a lot of processes. When you're solving a problem, whether it be in a job in the military or in a painting, that is not that hard of a bridge to cross.
0: So Dan, combat veteran of the Marine Corps, how many tours? Two to Iraq, one in Afghanistan, was it art oasis or
5: uh, the Point Loma Naval Base, there for an inpatient treatment program. I was there and Elizabeth was the art teacher. And of course exactly what she said the skirt wearing hippie walked in with paintbrushes so we're like cool this is gonna be
0: fun tell me about the decision to focus on murals and very public installations for the art you make as opposed to private showings things that you see a lot of other arts organizations do
3: uh it definitely is a social message for me it has more to do with art being used as a vehicle to communicate on a host of social issues. I've never really been a fan of soapboxes anyway, but I do know that human nature is such that people will react when they are personally affected. And the way that these wars are orchestrated these days, Americans aren't personally affected, so I feel like these days we can't really expect them to know that much. Using art as a vehicle to communicate for me is very gratifying because I have such a firm belief in the arts. I do enjoy bringing the civilian public together with the military because I think they both have preconceived notions about each other that aren't actually necessarily accurate. I think it's an opportunity to show them that they really are on the same side. I think it's an opportunity to show military members that civilians genuinely do care. They just don't know how to express it or what to say.
0: From dropping in on your studio sessions when you guys were making stuff, it looks a lot like an operational unit. So how important is it in your process to have that tribe back and in place
5: there's madness but there's a method there's definitely tribe you go back and you start looking at depression i mean i lost three close close friends when i was in iraq it's just you look at these things the the pieces of artwork i mean that's one i see a lot of since i've been involved in the arts it gives me something to do it gives me something to focus on i mean there's been times where i've just been mad i I don't know i wake up and i'm just mad i don't know if it was because a dream i can't remember i just had or whatever it is and i get up i go and i run through my day and more times than not, I have something going on in the arts throughout whatever it is, whether it's I'm making something out of leather, whether it's I'm teaching or I'm meeting with some people or, or something like what we're doing right now. It gets me out of the house and it gets me around people I know. The arts, is not just painting, it's actually interaction with great people. I mean, since I've been with Combat Arts, I've met some amazing people. I mean, I, I've met you through it. And it's just, it's one of those things that it's not solely focused on just making a piece of artwork. It's actually
0: just, it's the community that, that it's in. Elizabeth Washburn, and Dan Lopez, thanks so much for being on Incoming Combat Arts. Check them out.
3: Thank you. Thanks, Justin.
0: That's our show. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Corley is our editor. Musicians for this episode include Chris Warren, Ariana Warren, Chris Apple, Nick Keuster, and Mark Brody. Our outro music is by Tim32, a.k.a. Tim Koch. At KPBS, John Decker is Program Director, Nate John is Web Editor, Emily Jankowski is our Technical Director, and Kurt Conan is Audio Engineer. Special thanks to WQCS and the Treasure Coast for helping us to record Andrew Zalo. Funding for Incoming is provided by the KPBS Explorer Program, the Veterans Arts Initiative of the California Arts Council, and listeners like you. If you want to learn more and get involved, you can find us online at kpbs.org/incoming or at incomingradio.org. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.
5: KPBS on Demand is supported by Rancho La Puerta, which provides wellness retreats for solo travelers and families who enjoy hiking, mindfulness, and fitness classes in a garden setting on 4000 acres of nature preserve.
4: rancholapuerta.com